Hey, it's Nathan, and this is day 82 of the Bible in 90 Days, and we're in Romans. In fact, today, the entire 16 chapters of the book. A few words before beginning. The book of Romans represents an important transition from the previous five books. To this point, the books have focused largely on reporting the history, first of Jesus and his ministry, and then of the development of the early church. However, beginning with Romans and continuing through the remainder of the Bible, we'll be reading letters of guidance and encouragement sent to various groups of believers in the fledgling church. Now to chapter 1. It begins a letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. After a brief introduction, orienting his readers to the gospel, Paul identifies that his letter is to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. After this introduction, Paul expresses his longing to be with the believers in Rome whose faith has been reported all over the world. Following this are some of the most important lines in the chapter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. After this, Paul begins to set the stage for explaining the gospel. He builds his case for humanity's need of God's grace all the way through chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Here in chapter 1, however, Paul contends that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. However, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Chapter 2 continues the argument, but shifts the focus. While in chapter 1, Paul argued that wicked people suffer wrath because they reject the revelation of God in the natural world and in conscience, in chapter 2, he argues that when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? A few lines later, Paul asserts, God will repay each person according to what they have done. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Paul then specifically addresses the Jewish reader, arguing that salvation is not based on a person's genetic identity nor their religious claims. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Chapter 3 continues Paul's argument, though he begins with an observation. 
What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. After pondering this theme for several lines, Paul returns to his central argument. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Then he notes that the law can't remedy the problem of evil. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul then argues that faith excludes boasting and that both Jews and Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, are saved by faith. The chapter ends with a question to the reader. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Chapter 4 turns the reader's attention to Abraham, our forefather, whose life demonstrates Paul's point about faith. Quoting Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul argues that because Abraham received righteousness by faith, he is the father of all who believe, whether circumcised or not. The final argument in chapter 4 is that the birth of Isaac, Abraham's son, is a demonstration of righteousness through faith. This Isaac, the one through whom Abraham's lineage continued, was born by faith in God's promise, in spite of Abraham and Sarah's age-related infertility. Chapter 5 begins with these hope-filled words. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. In the chapter, Paul also highlights God's love. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This incredible demonstration of love is our assurance of God's saving work. The rest of the chapter is somewhat complex, but the point is quite simple. Through Adam's disobedience, sin and death came upon the whole human race, while through Christ, justification and life came on all people. So that, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 6. By the way, a chapter well worth reading, and I should mention chapter 3 as well, a chapter well worth reading. Chapter 6 celebrates the new life of righteousness that becomes the reality in every person's life who believes in Jesus. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He urges his readers to count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
The rest of the chapter argues that those under grace have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. The chapter concludes, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 7 argues that the law, while holy and good, can only demonstrate our lostness, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Under the law's illuminating light, we come to realize that we are unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. While we desire to do good, we find that we cannot carry it out. So, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Near the conclusion, Paul provides these words of hope. What a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Chapter 8, another chapter well worth reading, is full of magnificent hope, essentially wrapping up Paul's teaching about faith and salvation in the book. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul speaks for several lines about the present struggle and the future glory, as well as the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Then this line, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The last of the chapter answers the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Here is Paul's final conclusion. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Chapter 9 finds Paul shifting his focus to Israel, expressing, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people those of my own race, the people of Israel. The chapter continues addressing God's active involvement in human history. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? 
What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Near the conclusion of the chapter, Paul asks, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Chapter 10 begins, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. He then proceeds to explain that righteousness is freely available to all through faith in Christ. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Chapter 11 starts off, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. In fact, as Paul writes, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by God. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. He then urges the Gentile, that is, non-Jew believers, to exercise humility. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Some lines later, Paul writes, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The last lines of the chapter, words of gratitude, begin, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Chapter 12, another chapter well worth reading, begins Paul's final words of counsel to the church. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He then urges each member to do their part in the body of Christ in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Finally, he instructs, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Along with additional guidance on loving and living well, ending with, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Chapter 13 begins with counsel to submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Some lines later, Paul sums up the law succinctly. Whatever other command there may be, 
are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul's final words in chapter 13 begin, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Chapter 14, another chapter well worth reading, continues Paul's practical guidance to the church by encouraging a spirit of understanding toward each other. None of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Chapter 15 begins, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul then shares briefly about his mission to the Gentiles, expressing his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, and explaining that, This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. The chapter concludes, The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Chapter 16 is devoted to personal greetings, as Paul calls out specific greetings to people he knows, Priscilla and Aquila, Mary, Andronicus and Junia, Ampliatus, Urbanus, and many more. Many of the greetings contain a little note, such as, Another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. In the middle of these final remarks, Paul offers a few additional words of guidance. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The chapter and book wrap up with a benediction which begins, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, and ends, To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's all for today.